Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hi, this is Sarah Story with the Mississippi Arts Hour. Today we're joined by Ming Hong, an interdisciplinary artist based in Starkville, Mississippi. Welcome, Ming. Hi, thank you for having me, Sarah. Thanks for being here. We appreciate your time and just excited for our listeners to learn more about you and your uh, visual practice up there in Starkville. Awesome. I'm excited to talk about it. So let's, um, for those who aren't familiar with you or your work yet, uh, we just give a quick overview of um, what you're doing in Starkville and uh, a little bit about yourself and then we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, so I am not from Mississippi. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and um, I came to Mississippi to take a tenure track position at um, Mississippi State University. So I teach foundations, which is drawing one and design one, and I just get to welcome all the new freshmen here. And outside of that, I also get to continue my practice, which is rooted in drawing. So it's a lot of graphite and charcoal, and I've just introduced um, color pastels into my newer work as well. That's awesome. And um, you recently were named our 2021 State Fellow for Southern Prize. So congratulations on that. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> and that's a prize through South Arts, which is our regional arts organization um and that's based in atlanta so that that show will um people can view the work online and then the show will be up it, or it is up at the Bo bartlett center now correct yes it is it is up until um december great and that's in columbus georgia so if you're driving through georgia check it out yes absolutely please so I'd love to hear more about um, your growing up in LA and what that was like um, for you. Oh man, so I grew up in LA partly, well, I was born in China. My mom um, immigrated here. My dad's family moved here as uh, refugee immigrants. They initially, from the Vietnam War, um, wow. they initially were um, in Minnesota um, which I don't think that it was climate wise what they wanted. I hear Minnesota super cold and very different from like the climate in Vietnam. Right. So, yeah. How did they end up in Minnesota? I, a Lutheran church sponsored them. Okay. Um, so wow. this went with whatever church would take them. Wow. Uh, yeah. But Minnesota turned out not to be their like home. They didn't feel like it was home. And they heard that lots of people were moving to Los Angeles, which had a climate that is at least a little bit more similar to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, so they moved to Los Angeles. And fortunately, they were able to find a community of other immigrant Asians. Um, and I lived there for an incredibly long time until I was about 17 years old. Um, 
I never thought that I was going to be an artist. I, when I went to um, high school, I was, um, I was accepted into a math and science academy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, partly because, you know, my parents, I don't think that for like children of immigrants, it's not expected that you pursue a creative path at all. Um, it's not necessarily a lucrative path. So my parents were putting me in a lot of like extra math lessons and SAT lessons and things like that. And as a kid, um, they understood the importance of education and having a well-rounded education. So they also put me in art classes, Mm. but that was only supposed to be like an extracurricular. Um, So in high school, I was kind of admitted into this um, magnet school. And I really thought that I was gonna be like an engineer um, or wow. an architect. Um, and then my parents' job, they moved to Lexington, Kentucky and they're invited to move there as well. So we, in the middle of my junior year, I moved to Lexington, Kentucky. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little bit of a culture shock. It was, it, it was, it definitely made me feel like a cult, like cultural outsider. Um, growing up in Los Angeles, all my friends, their parents were also immigrants. Mm-hmm. So there was at least like a shared understanding of, you know, just understanding of each other's lives. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to Kentucky, I had, it was, it was crazy. Honestly, the one thing that I remember when I went to high school is I saw kids smoking outside and I had never, (laughs) growing up in Los Angeles, you don't see that many smokers. Mm. (laughs) So funny. Yeah. So we went, it was just, and yes, kids that were smoking and then um, there were lockers in the hallways. Um, But I, it was it wasn't a high school that was for math and science oriented students. It was just like a normal high school. Um, And that gave me the chance to take an actual art class within an academic setting. Mm. And that really propelled me to start to apply for art schools. And I moved, so I was admitted to several and I decided to go to MICA, which is in Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland. I did that for a year and then realized that economically it was not sustainable, partly because it's a private college. I didn't get that many scholarships. Um, So I transferred to the University of Kentucky where I finished my BFA degree. And I decided for two years just to take a break from art to make sure that that was something that I really wanted to do. And I was able to like sustain an art practice while working at a daycare, trying to make extra money. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Daycare workers, they work really hard. (laughs) Real nice. Yeah. Um, So I was able to continue doing that. And I was like, okay, maybe this is the time to apply for graduate school. So I applied to graduate school and decided to go to Washington University in St. Louis. Um, Completed my degree there. It was a two-year degree. And I realized um, that I also really love teaching, partly because of my graduate school experience. I was fortunate enough to get a um, teaching assistantship. Mm-hmm. So I taught 
a little bit there. And I was like, okay, I think this is what I want to do. I want to teach. I want to make art. Um, so I started applying for all these jobs. I was an adjunct for a while um, back in Kentucky. So I, I would drive back and forth. I was living with my then boyfriend at the time in St. Louis, but I mm. would um, drive to Kentucky to teach two days a week. And then on the weekends, go back to St. Louis. Wow. Uh, it was the adjunct hustle. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, that was only for, I think, one semester, maybe two. And I was very, very fortunate to be able to get a full-time position in um, Norfolk, Virginia, teaching at Old Dominion University. Um, I taught foundations, which drawing one, design one. And it was really an interesting experience. And it really provided me the platform to move to a tenure track position, which the one at ODU was not. And I, that's how I ended up at Mississippi, in Mississippi, at Mississippi State. That's awesome. Bouncing around. That's great. Yeah, you've definitely lived in a lot of um, different cities and states. Yeah, I really have. And I feel like I've lived in the South for a really long time. Mm, yeah, Kentucky and Mississippi and Virginia. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. What, um, what do you feel like one, one city or one state has felt like home to you? I think... St. Louis has always has like a special place in my heart, um, partly because I just have such a wonderful community of artists that Mm -hmm. I still talk to. Um, It's been years since I've lived in St. Louis. And honestly, like Mississippi has been the place that I've lived the longest. Oh, wow. Okay. As an adult. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I guess Mississippi is home now and it's, it's in, I'm, it's nice to think of it as home. Yeah, that's great. And you, you said you, you've been here for three, three years, four years, three and a half years, almost four, three and a half years. That's great. Um, so what was it like going to undergrad? Did you, when you were in undergrad at MICA and then at University of Kentucky, did you, you knew that you wanted to be an artist at that point, or were you still just exploring what that could be? What was your, what was going on in your life at that time? So I went to Micah. It was the first time I'd ever been super far away from my parents. And it was so eye-opening to be around so many people that had like-minded interests. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just the talent was so concentrated. So it was really, really easy for me to feel like I could pursue um, a career in art because the way that they built their community. Um, but yeah, finances would not have allowed me to stay. So I went back to the University of Kentucky and I actually applied for their architecture program because I panicked. Mm. Uh, I just thought that there was no way that I would be able to sustain a career in the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wanted health insurance. I wanted a retirement account. Uh, right yeah yeah so I was like all right I'm gonna apply for the architecture program and I got in and I just I didn't even go to a single class I was like this is not for me I don't think I like buildings that much wow (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) like whoops (laughs) too many buildings um so 
I went back and, and um, completed my degree in and got it in um, fine arts, which was amazing. And I had so many wonderful mentors that I'm still in touch with today that have been really helpful in terms of guiding me in terms of my career. Um, so I'm really, really grateful for that experience. What was the um, university setting like there? Was the art department a big part of the university? Was it a small part of the university? It's changed. So they have a brand new like state-of-the-art building. Oh, wow. But, yeah. But at the time, we were on the edge of campus in, a, in an old tobacco factory. Um, so it was not the heart of the university. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but... I think one of the great things of being in a building that's like awful and kind of run down is that you don't have to treat it like it's precious. So you can just do whatever mm -hmm. you want to it. Like I built installations, I like knocked down walls, I made holes everywhere. Um, so that was really nice. And I, I'm wondering whether students there now are afforded those same opportunities where they could be their own little like demolition derby. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, and you're tuning in to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Today, I'm speaking with Ming Hong, an interdisciplinary artist based in Starkville, Mississippi. So Ming, we were talking um, before about your time in doing your BFA, it was in Lexington, is that correct? Yes, in Lexington, in Lexington, Kentucky. And then, so you said that you had studio space, you're able to experiment. What was, um, did you take a lot of different types of art in undergrad? Did you know, did you have a focus? How did, how was that journey for you? I can't remember what their curriculum was like. I think I just did whatever I wanted to, That's or great. at least felt that way. Yeah. Um, I had really great professors that even if we were in a painting class would let me make sculptures and things like that. So it was, it was a lot of exploration mm -hmm. and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I think it's helped me think of my own practice as being interdisciplinary. So I make drawings and some sculptures and I dabble in a little bit of video work. Um, so it's really nice. Yeah, that's awesome. So then you went to, um, you took a couple years off, then you went to get your master's degree. What was that program like? That program was completely um, interdisciplinary. So you didn't graduate with like a drawing degree. Mm. Um, you just graduated with an MFA degree. 
Um, and that was really, really good too. I think when I was in undergrad, I had a really hard time articulating what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, like aesthetically, I knew what I wanted to make, but I just couldn't say it mm -hmm. um, and verbalize and communicate my ideas. Um, so graduate school is really great in terms of helping me write better um, and be able to communicate about my work in a more efficient manner and a mm -hmm. concise and concise manner. Um, and it really helped me contextualize my work and see how it fits within the realm of like art history and other canons of art. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's so great that you had that time to think through that in an MFA because that is that is I'm sure you see that with undergrad students now it is hard to articulate what you, what you're trying to convey on paper or in two-day or in 3d form when you're an undergrad it just takes so much time I think don't you just to work through it just learn yeah and I you know like seeing my undergrads now they're they're grappling with the fact that they have to learn a new skill like technically mm -hmm like drawing or painting or working with a specific material and then on top of that towards the end they have to talk about their work and it's just there's just they're juggling so many different things mm -hmm. um, so the expectation for them once they graduate here is that they should be able to at least talk about their work a little bit and then at least use that as a way to apply for exhibitions or future graduate programs if they're interested in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. Um, so what else was um, what else were you able to explore in your MFA program? Did, did you have a specific body of work come out of that? What were you working on at that time? Um, I made really awful work. <laughs> it was all experimental. Um, I think one of the nice things about graduate school, at least like your first year of graduate school, is that the expectation is that you just make work that really pushes your own boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just a lot of really strange sculptures and like testing new ideas out, just conceptually exploring a lot of different things. Like for a long time, I was dealing with like eroticism mm -hmm. and, but like that is not an interest that feels sincere to me now, mm -hmm. but I'm glad that I, I was dealing with that so that I could know that I don't want to talk about it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so my second year was our thesis year. And that was the time when we had to produce um, a written thesis as well as a body of work. And that body of work ended up kind of propelling me to uh, make the amalgamation series, which is um, on view at the Beau Bartlett Center. Um, and that series dealt a lot with dealing with binaries. Um, it was an exploration of um, a lot of things like dealing with female and male bodies, ill and healthy bodies. And the images, the drawings that I made were a mishmash of all these different binaries all into one kind of cohesive unit. And the goal for that, for those pieces was just to think about how binaries are a bit problematic because it really forces people into specific categories. Mm -hmm. And not only does it do that, but by making a male and female binary, you're also creating like a hierarchy too. Mm -hmm. um, 
where, you know, the male is on top and female is lower or um, thinking about just beautiful and ugly bodies too. Um, we get to normalize what's normal and abnormal by creating these um, binaries. So the work was all about dispelling um, these these categories and trying to think about identity as something that's a little bit more fluid. That's great. Um, that's really interesting. Did you, did that come out of something you had been thinking for a while? Did that come out of a grad school experience? Like where did this come from in your own life? I think it came a little bit from my grad school experience. Um, but a lot of it came from just thinking about my own identity, um, you know, as someone who is Chinese and, and American, those feel like very different polar opposites. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I made that body of work, I didn't directly deal with my own identity, but I was thinking about it in the background. And my newer work is dealing with that a little bit more head on um, I've always been like a little bit of a private person. And so it's been interesting to like focus solely on myself and mm -hmm. thinking about myself. Um, so the work right now is just thinking about how these, the idea of belonging and how in certain situations, I don't necessarily feel American enough. And in other situations, I don't necessarily feel Chinese enough. Mm -hmm. And understanding how um, these two identities can be forged into something that's a mishmash of both. And that's absolutely okay. I don't have to necessarily align with being Chinese or being American. Um, it could be all of these things and I can embody both these identities. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, what was it like moving from uh, L.A. in high school to Kentucky as an American and an Asian? Like, that, that must have been really interesting transition. It was. Um, I think it was just, it was wild. Um, <laughs> uh, like, you know, my parents don't speak a ton of English, wow. so it it made me become more of, I like took on an interpreter role for my parents mm. and their reliance on me became a little bit heavier. Whereas when they were in LA, they had a community of people that spoke the same language that they did. We have family still there and there are stores that cater to Chinese people and Chinese speaking people. And in Kentucky, that just was not a thing. Um, I think it's getting better now. My dad still lives there um, and he goes to the Asian market all the time. And there are lots of other Asian markets that pop up too. So it's starting to feel a lot more like home for them. But when it, when we were, um, when we first moved there, we felt definitely like transplants. And I remember going to high school and enrolling in high school and talking to the admissions person and I hadn't said anything and I was still interpreting things for my parents. And then she was like, so have you taken your ESL test yet? And I was like, oh, I don't need to take it. Wow. <laughs> I, I can speak English. Thank you. Yeah, so that's crazy. It was honestly one of the first times when I realized that people make assumptions about me 
um, based on the way that I look and not be, you know, put me in a single category and into a box and it could be incredibly confining. Yeah, absolutely. And um, did that continue being a push and pull for you as you moved to other cities or did you kind of resolve your being Asian and American in Kentucky? Like, what was that journey like for you? I think at first it was really, really hard. You know, I think that my goal was just to assimilate as best that I could. So um, kind of pushing away my Chinese identity and um, dealing with that. And then as I've grown older, it's more about bringing back my Chinese identity Mm -hmm. in and thinking about how to negotiate both being someone who's Chinese and American. And honestly, like I, I've just, I didn't just have a baby. I had a baby a year ago and his father is Caucasian and I'm Chinese and he looks just like me. And I'm starting to think about how he's going to interact with people. Mm. You know, like sometimes when I'm not with my husband and he's the one holding the baby, I'm a little worried I don't know if worried is even the right word, but I, I, I'm concerned that sometimes people will think that like my baby has just been adopted. Mm. Um, <laughs> so the new work is also kind of dealing with that. Um, and I think having the baby has really kind of put um, these issues about my own identity into kind of like full view. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm thinking about him a lot and thinking about how he's gonna have to deal with um, living in Mississippi as someone who looks really, really Chinese. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, yeah. So will you um, talk a little bit about what your work looks like for people that haven't seen it, um, just so they can kind of visualize as you're talking about? Absolutely. So the work that is at the Bo Bartlett Center, the amalgamation series, um, they're highly detailed drawings of masses that float within a um, blank space. Um, The drawings are drawn on mylar, which is a drafting film that architects use. There's a transparency to that material. Um, The reason why I choose it is because it reminds me a little bit of skin. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when you get like a a really bad sunburn and you peel it off and you get that translucent piece of skin. Mm -hmm. Um, So I visually, I think it shares that relationship and the work is all about bodies. Um, The images that are in the drawings are sourced from a variety of different places. So I look at a lot of beauty magazines because that kind of sets the standards of what's considered beautiful or not. I also um, look at a lot of like bodybuilding magazines and men's health magazines because that's also kind of a very idealized um, like image of a male Mm -hmm. body. Um, And then I also go and look at medical textbooks and the drawings are um, an amalgamation essentially of all these different sources and they are combined into the singular mass. And from afar, it looks like a very unified composition. 
And then coming up closer to it, you see that it's actually a ton of different fragments mm. of pieces and everything is visually like hierarchically very, um, they're presented where it's, I guess, how do I say this? Um, presented so that nothing competes with one another. Everything mm. is calling for your attention at the same time um, so that no component feels like it's above or valued more than the other. Um, and the images themselves, I guess some would say they're gruesome. Maybe they're, um, they definitely deal with ugliness too. Mm -hmm. um, so they are just a, a serious hodgepodge of a lot of different images. This is Sarah Story, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen to the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Sarah Story, the Executive Director for the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today on the Arts Hour, we're speaking with Ming Hong, an interdisciplinary artist in Starkville, Mississippi. So you're in Starkville and you're teaching at Mississippi State University. Tell us a little bit about how how teaching influences your work or how your work influences your teaching is there do you feel like it's a um, fluid relationship or do you feel like those are pretty separate components of your life I feel like it is absolutely incredibly fluid and one influences the other um, so the class that I teach mainly is drawing which is something that I find so dear to my heart mm -hmm. um, and drawing is all about understanding how to see something and from seeing that you have a better understanding of it it's all about building those powers of observations um, and I think that drawing has been at least for my students it's a really like democratic practice in that no matter if you're rich or poor um, you have access to drawing materials you know, all you really need is like a paper and graphite pencil and some charcoal. So mm -hmm. it's really, really affordable medium and it really helps students. They're able to um, better visualize what the end result is going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, but outside of teaching drawing, which I am so in love with, um, I last semester I was also teaching um, senior thesis, which mm. is about you know helping them conceptually um, talk about their work and relate form to content and that class is 
like so much fun to teach, partly because I have to constantly do research about other artists. You know, the students that um, graduate from our program, they make a wide, wide variety of work. Mm -hmm. Sculptures, drawings, paintings. And my responsibility as a professor is to show them artists who work in a similar manner or artists who deal with the same subject matter as they do. So in, in doing that, I have to do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. That helps me better understand like the contemporary art world and just understand just art history better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always trying to find readings for them that relate to their own artwork. And I inevitably have to read those readings. So. Mm-hmm it's really, really great in that it pushes me to become a better artist because I have a better understanding of what the art world is like. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any, um, do you, you listen to podcasts? Do you have um, certain news, news, art news sources you look at? What are some of your go-tos? Just like entertainment podcasts? Or like Uh, arts. Oh, arts. (laughs) To keep up with the art world because it's constantly like I struggle to keep up with it because it's constantly changing and like so I try to just stick to like a few you know news sources arts news sources and then a few arts art arts podcasts and that's about all I can do. <laughs> it is so much. So I follow the blog Hyperallergic, which mm-hmm. I think is really really great. Um, they also have a podcast that they do, which is really fascinating as well. Um, and then Art Talk is a really lovely podcast. They've interviewed a lot of artists that I've really admired. I think one of my favorite ones has been an interview with Salman Tor, who's a painter, mm. um, dealing with like queer in- intimacy. Um, what else have I listened to? Um, I, I think that um, Burnaway is they also have a podcast and they have a blog, um, which is really great. Um, and then just stuff that's just related to my own work is NPR has a really lovely podcast called Code Switch, hmm. which deals with, you know, essentially people with different identities code switching and changing their language or changing their behavior to fit into a specific like environment. Um, wow. It's super interesting. Yeah, I've, I'm going to add that one to my list. I have not listened to that one. I've listened to all the other ones, but that's great. Code switch. Um, so tell us a little bit more about uh, this South Arts Southern Prize. So you're our 2021 State Fellow for the state of Mississippi, which is awesome. So what does that mean? What do you get to do? Well, it means that um, I get to participate in the show at the Bo Bartlett Center in um, Columbus, Georgia, which is really exciting. It is with all my um, fellows, the other fellows. Um, it also means that I was awarded $5,000 to pursue, make new work, um, which is amazing. And I think what it's done is it's afforded me the opportunity to make work that fails like that really, really sucks and um, lets me experiment with a lot of new materials that I otherwise like financially would not have been able to do. So it's propelling my work in kind of interesting ways. Um, I've been, the new work that I'm making 
has is involving color um, with pastels and I've had to learn how to use chalk pastels and I've they're on canvas and I've had to learn how to prepare the canvas so that um, chalk pastel is suitable for it. And I've had to learn how to preserve the chalk pastel so it doesn't smear everywhere. I'm also making a lot of sculptures that aren't really going anywhere yet. Um, they are, they're horrible. But <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing is that with every failure, I get closer and closer to what I eventually want to do, get closer and closer to success. So failure is incredibly productive and the South Arts, um, being the South Arts State Fellow has allowed me to be a failure, which is really, really nice. That's awesome. So I, I love that you use the term failure because it it's so true. I think that we, a lot of people would look at any artist's work and say, oh, well, they just always make this, you know, perfect work and then they hang it up and they sell it. And, but it, it's so much time and process and, and exploration and giving yourself time to fail. I think that's such, I mean, that's a, that's why, you know, you're able to constantly evolve and change and grow and, and keep making new work and evolve it. I think that's really great. I'm glad that you said that and shared that. Thank you. Um, do you, do you find that that's hard for, is that hard for your undergrad students to learn that it's okay to, to fail? Is that something that you get to talk to them about? Yes. I talk to them, you know, at the foundations level when they're freshmen, we do an orientation and I tell them that, you know, it's okay to fail. I show them all these drawings that previous students have made that involve a lot of erasure and a lot of like you know, imprints of past lines that they've made. And I'm like, every time that they put down a line that's incorrect, they get closer to the correct line, mm. you know? And you should not be afraid to be vulnerable and know that you don't know something. Mm -hmm. If you acknowledge that you have a deficit in a certain area, you're going to be able to like work harder at it. Whereas if you did not know that you were bad at something, then there's no, you wouldn't be able to improve at all. Mm -hmm. And for the senior students, they're, they're very scared of failure, partly because they're worried that they won't graduate if they don't, you know, complete a body of work. Um, but I, you know, I tell them that it's incredibly important and when they do graduate, I say apply for shows, lots of exhibitions. I myself keep a failure folder um, of all the exhibitions that I have not been asked to participate in. Mm -hmm. um, I arrange it by year. <laughs> it's a nice growing list, but what it reminds me to do is like constantly apply and try. Mm -hmm. And I show my students this folder of failure. And I'm like, you just have to be vulnerable and know that if, if you don't succeed, that you have to reevaluate and figure out whether number one, if it's the right exhibition or opportunity for you, or number two, how you can improve your work or the way that you contextualize your work and verbalize and communicate your work. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, what else, what other advice do you have for 
maybe young students or adults that are thinking about going back to school or pursuing art again. I've definitely seen a lot of people kind of get back into, you know, the arts this past year during the pandemic because they've had a little bit more time on their hands. Oh, well, that's awesome. Um, I will say surround yourself with artists. I think, you know, during my time at MICA, it was so wonderful because all these people were making things. Mm. And the more you see people make things, the more you feel like you should be making things. And it's really great to also have conversations with people so that studio visits, you know, everyone can look at each other's work and exchange ideas. And through those conversations, you can also like they can also suggest things that maybe you haven't thought of. Um, and then you can explore new territory that way. But I, I do think that finding a community is so important just so that you propel yourself to um, make work. And of course, like the other piece of advice is just to make work, even if it is super, super hard. Um, I've been really fortunate to teach um, a little bit and then devote a lot of time to my practice. And it's really, really easy to like not show up one day in the studio and not treat it like a job. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been trying really, really hard to kind of treat my studio practice like as a nine to five type of situation where I get to come to studio and make work, explore. Sometimes it's not necessarily productive, but I'm in here mm -hmm. and then I go for a lunch break and I come back and I work a little bit more, um, but it's it's really hard to make yourself make work. But when you're in the studio, it's really, really wonderful. The worst part is just getting to the space and starting. What's it been like over the past year with teaching, with you know people doing studio visits for you? I'm sure you've been doing studio visits for other artists and students. How have you been, how does that even work during a pandemic? I cannot imagine trying to do all this over Zoom every day. They've been virtual. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Definitely not the same as going and seeing actual work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, studio visits also, like, our Instagram, like, you know, I scroll through Instagram and I can see other people's work in their studios, but it's, been a little bit isolating for sure. I think in the beginning of the pandemic, it was incredibly isolating and it was really overwhelming. Um, teaching was kind of interesting, teaching virtually as well. Um, but I've, we've been able to persevere, which is wonderful. Um, and it's nice to get to semi-normalcy and be able to actually visit people's studios and be able to teach students in the space. I mean, it's definitely nerve wracking um, just because you're in a space with so many people that you don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's also just kind of nice to be around people and to be able to help students make drawings and actually touch their drawings mm -hmm. and actually see their work in person so that you get a sense of what the scales like. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that was really hard to learn for those students that had to learn drawing for the first time last year. What was that like? I was on maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> so I did not have to do that. But from what my colleagues say, they've made, they made so many videos and 
feedback was given online. Um, I, I don't know what the student work looks like, but I, from what I've heard, it's been pretty excellent, but I don't think that it's anything like being in person teaching and in person learning. Um, it's really hard to translate studio practices to a virtual realm. Yeah. Wow. Well, what else are you working on right now? What are you working towards? Well, I am working towards trying to finish this new body of work dealing with identity um, by December. And it's going to contain a variety of pieces that are big and small. So I just finished two pieces. One of them is a really large paper drawing with charcoal um, that deals with um, one of that deals with my own identity and the other one is an oil pastel drawing that's awesome so what has that been like for you to explore and you said pastels were new right a new element they are new it's been interesting it's a lot of learning how color theory <laughs> mm -hmm. back to basics um but it's very similar to charcoal too it's just learning how to preserve it is the difficult part that's so that's so great. Well, thank you so much, Ming, for being on our show. We appreciate your time and glad that you're in Starkville, Mississippi and uh, a representative for us for the Southern Fellow Prize. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.